with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And today we're going to be continuing our sermon series uh, through this book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we went a little more quickly through some of the earlier sections of this book. Um, and now here in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, we're slowing down just a little bit and we're paying attention. Uh, we're paying attention to God's instruction for us as a church family as it relates to a couple of themes. These themes of our ministry to one another in the church and this theme of prayer together as a church. And so throughout the month of September, we'll be learning about these themes together. Today's verse, and we're just looking at one single verse today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, is a verse that equips members of the body of Christ for service to other members of the body of Christ. And so there's a little bit of a trick in this passage The trick is this, if you're a part of the body of Christ, you've got some work to do. (laughs) If you're a part of the body of Christ, if you've believed in Jesus and you're a part of his body, then you've got ministry to do in your life. Sometimes as Christians, we ask this question, we say like, I'm praying about going into ministry. If you're a Christian, you don't need to pray about that. If you're a Christian, you've already been called into ministry. You just need to obey and get busy doing what God has already called and sent you to do. Whether you're male or female, whether you're older or younger, whether you've been around in the faith for decades or whether you are relatively new in the faith. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ filled with God's own spirit then God has work for you to do in building up the body of Jesus Christ. Paul, in one of his other letters, has this kind of ridiculous list of questions. And he kind of says, like, he kind of says, like, how could the eye say to the mouth or say to the ear, like, I don't need you? How can one part of the body say to the rest of the parts of the body, I'm cool without you? And the way that that picture works is that picture is reminding us that a healthy body includes each and every unique part of the body playing its part, which has this implication. If you are part of the body, whether you like to think of yourself as an eye or an ear or an elbow... The body can't function in a fully healthy way without the contributions that God intends for you to make in his body. I wonder how many of us have really let this message sink in to realize that God's vision for healthy ministry in the church involves not just a few pastors Not just a team of elders. Now, leaders matter. We talked about that last week in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Leaders matter, sure. But healthy ministry in the church involves not just a few pastors, not just a few leaders, not just a few small group leaders, not just parents. It involves every member of the body of Christ contributing to the upbuilding and the health of the whole. 
Now, the question that comes up very quickly as soon as we start thinking about that is this question, what would it look like for me to contribute? What would it look like for me to play a part in ministry? And as we're listening along to the letter that was written to the Thessalonians, as we've said before, this is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. It's written by a missionary team to a church plant that was established relatively recently. And as this missionary team is writing back to this new church plant, we get a picture of kind of at its basic level how the church is meant to function. And here in chapter 5, we get a picture of how ministry to one another is meant to happen in the church. And so I hope that one of the effects from hearing this passage today is that you will go away not just saying, you know, Josh ministered to me today. I really hope and pray that you'll go away feeling like the Holy Spirit has equipped you to minister to others today through the teaching of his word. And so I want to invite you to listen in, not just because this is the time of week that we listen, but I want you to listen in because this is the time of week when you will be equipped to go and serve others, to go and play your part in building up the body of Christ. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 14, we hear these words. And we urge you, brothers, In other words, this is a family thing, right? This isn't just like a job thing, like some of you are going to have jobs in ministry. This is a family thing. Brothers and sisters in the family of Christ, united together by the blood of Jesus, we urge you, we ask you, brothers, excuse me, I got lost there. We urge you, brothers, verse 14, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. May God bless the reading of his word today. I want to show you in this passage four tools that we're meant to use in Christian ministry. Tool number one is the tool of correction. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 begins with this direction. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Now, there might be a specific scenario in mind in the church in Thessalonica that is reading this letter. There might be a specific scenario of some of the Thessalonian believers who have been told that they should work, and yet they just aren't willing to show up at their day job. They've been told, they understand the instruction you should work to contribute to society. You should work to, to, you should work to be able to support yourself and eat your food and support your family. And yet they just aren't willing to do that. And the scenario here seems to be a scenario in which some of these believers in the church are just idle. They're just lazy. They're just rebellious in this unique way of saying, I know that I'm supposed to work, but I just would rather not. Some translations translate that word idle a little more broadly with the term unruly, which fits with the Greek word or something like that. It could be that that the missionary team is writing very specifically to this scenario of some of the believers saying, I know I'm supposed to work, but I'd rather not. 
Or it could be that there's meant to be an echo of that as well as an echo of the broader meaning of that word that some believers in any given congregation at any given time are going to have more head knowledge than application. Do you track with me? At any given time in any congregation, there are going to be some of us here who say, I know what I'm supposed to do, but my heart just isn't in it. I'm just not going to do it. This scenario seems to speak one way or another of a situation that the Bible would sometimes describe as being hard-hearted. Like in Psalm 95, verse 8, do not harden your heart. To be idle or to be unruly is to have a heart that knows the direction it should go, but is unwilling to follow through and do it. And the direction in a scenario like that is to say there's a certain tool that we need in one another ministry in the church. It's a tool called here admonishing people. Now, what does it mean to admonish somebody? Maybe the picture that comes to your mind when you hear the word admonishing is to think of somebody flying off the handle emotionally and yelling, that's it, I've had enough. But in the original language of Greek, in the language that this letter was first written in, that word admonish doesn't refer to somebody flying off the handle emotionally and just yelling and letting other people have it. It means something different. The verb nutheteo, I think we've got this on the screen, in the best respected Greek lexicon, defines this verb like this. It defines it as to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. It doesn't mean flying off the handle emotionally and yelling. It means counseling somebody to avoid what should be avoided or to stay away from what should be stayed away from, if you will. And the glosses for it could include admonishing or warning or even simply instructing. To admonish someone in the biblical sense is not flying off the handle and yelling. It's counseling someone, warning them, even instructing them. And if there's an emotion that goes along with admonishing in Scripture, do you know what that emotion would be? It would be some emotion that we might call tearful compassion. Not uncontrolled outrage. And so, for example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, we hear the Apostle Paul talking to the elders in the church in Ephesus where he served for three years. And it's a tearful gathering. Before he leaves, they're all like huddled together and hugging and crying on each other's shoulders. This is the kind of affection there is between one another at this gathering. And during this discussion, we read in Acts 20, 31, Paul says, Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish, that's the same word, to admonish everyone with tears of compassion, with tears of affection. Admonishing is not what Paul did when he got outraged and just started yelling at people. Admonishing is what Paul did when he loved people and he felt affection in his heart for them. And so he saw the need to teach them, to instruct them, to counsel them, even sometimes to give them warning on what a healthier and wiser direction would be. 
And so, for example, if we take the specific scenario of some of the believers in Thessalonica perhaps not working, we get a picture of Paul admonishing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, when Paul says, You know how I instructed you while I lived with you, that if someone will not work, he will not eat. That's not Paul throwing things across the room and yelling in outrage. It's simple, patient, level-headed instruction from the heart of somebody who cares. This is one of the ministry tools that we need to learn to use in the church. Sometimes admonishing is needed. Sometimes this kind of correction is needed. This week I was having a hard time remembering when I've needed correction. So I asked a few of my closest friends if they remember any times that I've needed correction. It was astonishing to me how quickly they got back to me. A little disturbing, in fact, until I thought about it a little bit more. And I thought, you know, at least there's a healthy openness here, right? At least at least my friends aren't afraid to tell me the truth, right? I'd rather have that. How about one personal example from my life? This one hurts a little bit for me to share, but I'd like to risk an exercise in transparency to help equip you for ministry in the future. Is this a safe place for me to share? Nobody else ever has to know except us and the Internet, right? A few weeks ago um, in my house, one of my kids walked into another room and started interacting with another one of my kids and sometimes as parents we have this radar that says this is a high alert discussion happening in the other room they're getting a little louder and a little louder and I was in the middle of something else I didn't want to be bothered with what I was bothered with and so focused on this other thing and hearing this thing going off and my radar on, uh, uh, going up on my head I just kind of spoke loudly into the other room. Some people would say I shouted. I I just spoke loudly in my thinking, but I spoke loudly into the other room and I called out my daughter's full name. Now, each of my daughters has a shortened version of their name that they normally go by, but I used full first name, full middle name. Come over here. I want to talk to you. And we had a discussion and we diffused the immediate situation and I thought we were doing all right. And then a couple hours later, that same daughter had the courage and the kindness to come and talk to me and tell me that she doesn't like it when I use her full name. Because, she explained, you only use my full name when you're mad. There's a lot going on in that moment, isn't there? There's a lot going on there. And in that moment, I have some options. I can harden my heart. I can stiffen my neck. I can fight back. Or I can receive this as the Lord's love for me, helping me see myself and my mistakes more clearly so that I can love my daughter and love my family more faithfully going forward, right? You see, that evening in my house, when I was barking across from one room to another, that was not biblical admonishing. But when my daughter came and had that loving conversation with me and helped me see things a little bit more clearly, God's Spirit was using that 
to admonish me, to correct me, to challenge me in ways that I needed to be challenged as a dad, right? This is a picture, I think, of the kind of correction that I need, a kind of correction that we need often in church life. I wonder if you can recall times when you've needed brothers or sisters or even family members to bring a word of loving admonishment into your life. There's this thing in our culture that sometimes assumes anytime somebody shares a word of correction, it's just being mean. And yet we in the church have a unique perspective on this idea of correction, right? Because if we're a part of the family of Jesus Christ, we each already have this as part of our testimony. Jesus did not agree with me in everything. In fact, he challenged me. And he called me to repent. And yet he loved me deeper than anybody else has ever loved me. And so in the church, in the family of Jesus Christ, with him as Lord, with him as head... With His Spirit dwelling within us, we have an opportunity to live out a different approach to correction. An approach to correction which is not just a way of kind of emotionally unleashing on other people. It's not just a way of trying to make people into my image or trying to get people to agree with my agendas. We have this unique view of correction that it's a way of actually loving each other. To raise issues that God would want us to see more clearly so that we can live more faithfully as followers of Jesus Christ. This is one tool that we need as parents, that we need as brothers and sisters in the family of Christ, that we need as small group members, that we need in this church family. We need this tool of correction as one of the tools for ministry. But there's a second tool that this passage draws our attention to. It's the tool of encouragement. The tool of encouragement. Look with me, if you would, at our verse again, verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. You know that common saying, when all you have is a hammer? When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail that needs to be hammered, right? But what happens when your friend has a mosquito on their shoulder? If all you have is a hammer, that mosquito looks like something that needs to get hammered and somebody's going to get hurt. Let's hope the mosquito doesn't land on their forehead next, right? If all you have is a hammer, somebody's going to get hurt. And the same is true in Christian ministry. If all we have are tools to correct sin, everything looks like a sin to be corrected. But if all we have is a hammer, sometimes people are going to get hurt. And so... As the missionary team writes back to this church plant and gives instructions for how ministry is meant to happen. Yes, one of the ministry tools that we need to have is the ministry tool of correction. But we also need ministry tools like this. Words of encouragement. 
that build people up specifically when they are faint-hearted. There's a lot of sin in the world, but not everything is a sin that needs to be confronted. Our passage talks about Christians who are faint-hearted and in need of encouragement. Want a biblical example of faint-heartedness? I remember years ago, I heard a counselor and author and teacher named David Paulison talking about this verse. It gave me a lot of helpful instruction. And one of the passages that he brought up is this, this niche little moment in the story of the book of Exodus. It's kind of stuck with me and helped me understand this issue of faint-heartedness more clearly. The people of God in Exodus chapter 6 are living under harsh slavery in Egypt, right? Moses speaks a word of hope to the people of Israel. But then what happens? Exodus chapter 6 verse 9 says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Now, if we just stop right there, and if all we have is a hammer, what is that? Sin! You're not listening to God's Word. Time for the hammer. Time for correction. But listen to how God's Word itself describes what's going on there. Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. We might think they're sinning and in need of correction. But the Bible actually says this isn't an issue of willful disobedience. It says this is an issue of faint-heartedness amongst God's people. Faint-heartedness so deep that even when God's words are spoken, they can't hear it. It just won't sink in. And when someone is faint-hearted... Have you seen this scenario before? You speak a word of truth and they nod their head and they say, I know that's true for other people, but I just have a hard time believing that's true for me. What can you do to minister to a brother or a sister in your household or a brother or a sister in the family of faith? who is experiencing faint-heartedness. Correcting someone who is faint-hearted is about as effective as using a hammer for a fly on the forehead. I'm telling you this, unfortunately, from personal experience. When somebody is faint-hearted, the tool that 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 teaches us to use is the tool not of correction, but of encouragement. And so if you have the privilege of sitting with someone who's faint-hearted, what would wise ministry look like? Well, first of all, for one thing, it would probably look like a lot of listening. Um, Francis Schaeffer, a name that some of you will know, founder of the Labrie Institute in Switzerland. Francis Schaeffer used to say, if I had only one hour with someone, I would spend 55 minutes asking questions and listening. And then five minutes trying to say something that would speak to their situation once I've understood it more. Lots of listening is wise. 
But even once we've listened, then what? As we listen to our brother, as we listen to our sister, disclosing the faint-heartedness, the weakness, the inner withering that they feel in their soul, then what can we say? I don't know anything more powerful and more helpful and more life-giving than telling a faint-hearted person about the heart of Jesus Christ himself. Sometimes after listening to a faint-hearted brother or sister for 55 minutes, I've opened my Bible to Isaiah chapter 42, for example. Sometimes this is what it sounds like to minister to somebody who's faint-hearted. We just go to Isaiah chapter 42 and we read this description of the heart of Christ. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Do you get those pictures that Isaiah is offering? I'll just pick up one of them. How about the picture of a faintly burning wick? A candle that's just barely alive anymore. Just kind of that faint orange glow at the top of the black wick and maybe a little bit of smoke emanating up. Not much light, not much heat, just the tiniest of glow. And so many religious teachers, and unfortunately so many of us in the family of faith even, have this instinct to see that little glowing thing and we just kind of want to... Snuff it out. I'm sick of it. Hot or cold, be fully there. But Isaiah chapter 42 tells us this is what the heart of Christ is like. The slightest ember, he will not snuff out. And so if you feel even today like there's only the faintest ember of spiritual life glowing within you, I want to tell you the good news about the heart of Jesus Christ. He will not snuff that light out of your chest. In fact, he will faithfully bring forth restoration. Where other times I've opened my Bible to Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Romans 8 is a treasure trove For those who are faint of heart. It's been a treasure trove for my soul when I've been depressed and down. And yet right in the middle of Romans 8.30, right in the middle of Romans 8 is a verse that sometimes we skim over too quickly. It says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. And then listen to this idea. And let it breathe life into the faintly burning wick of your soul. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is right now, present tense, interceding for us. So sometimes we just need to share with a brother or sister who feels like there's only the faintest glow of spiritual life left in my chest. And maybe that brother or sister would say, like, I'm not praying. And if all you've got is a hammer, you say, I know that prayer is commanded by Scripture. Repent of not praying. 
But there's another way in speaking to a brother or sister who's faint-hearted and says, I'm having a hard time praying even. And we can say, you know what? Good news about the heart of Jesus. Even though you're not praying to him today, he's interceding for you right now. And he's not going to quit. Perhaps the simplest word of encouragement that we can offer to a brother or sister who is faint-hearted to point them to the heart and presence and power of Christ available right now is simply to offer them this promise from the heart of Christ. The very last words of the book of Matthew, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You're feeling lifeless, you're feeling down, you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling like you've tried everything and it hasn't worked. I've got good news for you. Jesus is with us now. And he will not give up. Not to the end of the age. Time doesn't permit us to talk about Psalm 23 and the hope for faint-hearted souls there. Isaiah 40 and the hope for faint-hearted souls there. John chapters 13 through 17 are the picture of the new heavens and the new earth. But the point is this. Sometimes correction is needed. Sometimes encouragement is needed. Encouragement from the promises of God that reveal to us the heart of Jesus Christ. Sometimes correction is needed. Sometimes encouragement is needed. And then there's a third ministry skill that this passage suggests we need to grow in. That third ministry skill is the skill of helping other people. Look with me again at verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and then what? Help the weak. How do we understand this idea of weakness? It's kind of hard in our culture because uh, in American culture in general and in Midwestern culture in particular, we don't like to impose on other people. We don't like to be dependent on other people. We like to be strong enough and we like to have it all together. Yes and amen, all the good Midwesterners said. And then there's the Christian view of what we're really like as people. Can I take you for a second back to Romans chapter 8, verse 26? In Romans 8, 26, Paul assesses our experience as Christians like this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Now, in order for that to be true, two things need to be true. First of all, you need to have weaknesses. In order for Romans 8.26 to be true, each and every one of us needs to have real weaknesses in our lives. Now, that's going to be hard for us as Midwesterners. So you can just exhale for a second. The Bible just gave us a culture blow to the belly, all right? We have weaknesses. Sometimes we get sick and we physically don't have enough strength. We have weaknesses, We don't have every kind of ability. And you know what? We were never designed to be omniscient or omnicompetent. We're not able to be there for everybody. You know why? Because we were never designed to be omnipresent. We don't know everything. 
Even the things we think we know, we sometimes see in a glass darkly and don't have it all put together correctly. We run out of insight. We run out of know-how. We get to the end of ourselves and we find, I'm just here in this place of weakness and I can't get myself out of it. One of the things that has to be true in order for Romans 8, 26 to be true is we have to have weaknesses in our lives. But the other thing that has to be true about Christians, if Romans 8, 26 is true, and I believe it is, is that we all as Christians have had this experience not only of being weak, but of finding God's very own spirit ministering to us in our weaknesses. In those areas where we don't have enough physical strength, in those areas where we don't have enough emotional strength, in those areas where we don't have enough time or we don't have enough insight, in, in these experiences, not only have we been weak, but we have this real experience of the Spirit meeting us and actually helping us in our weaknesses. Sometimes He helps us by kind of overcoming the obstacles for us. And sometimes He helps us in our weakness By helping us learn our way through those obstacles. Like when Paul has this weakness that he describes as a thorn in the flesh. And he asks and asks and asks that that obstacle be removed. And instead of the obstacle being removed, he gets a promise from the Lord that says, My grace is enough for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. So here's the thing, as Christians, we're not unfamiliar with weakness and we're not unfamiliar with help in weakness. But the cool thing about 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is that this experience that we've each had as Christians, being weak and having God meet us in our weakness, is an experience that we are meant not only to import, but to export. Not only to receive, but then to give out of what we have received to others, right? So coming back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. For those who have experienced help, the age-old Christian answer to real weaknesses that we see in other people's lives, the age-old Christian answer is not toughen up, would you? The age-old Christian answer is, we're here to help. Now, some of us are like, wait, but what if somebody is lazy and they're just not doing what they should do? There's a tool for that. It's correction. But if all you have is a hammer, We need this tool of not only correcting and encouraging, but sometimes just kind of rolling up our sleeves and helping out other people, right? This passage is teaching us to minister with a personalized discernment that reflects the personalized grace that we've each experienced from Jesus and from His, His Spirit. So what about, what about the parents who just found out That their young child has autism. As Christians, we don't ask who sinned, him or his parents. As followers of Christ, we ask, how could we help? What about the woman with a chronic health condition? 
We don't say, oh, ye of little faith, obviously you lack faith or else you would have already been healed. As followers of Christ, we ask with hearts of compassion, how could we help? For a single woman in an unexpected pregnancy, considering her options, we don't heartlessly and self-righteously say, Look, in your situation, parenting is going to be really tough. You better figure that out. Rather, as Christians, we ask with hearts of compassion, how could we help? For our immigrant neighbors who came to America seeking refuge, if they're having a hard time getting a job because they don't speak English very well, we don't heartlessly say, you really should have learned English before you moved here. As followers of Christ, we say, how could I help? How about for the aging widow? For the aging widow, we don't say, how come you can't rekindle your strength and use your gifts like you used to? No, for the aging widow, we say, how can we help? I want to use this example with my friend Josh's permission. Many of you will know exactly what I'm talking about here. What about when a church leader feels internally like he is more burnt out than he has ever been before in his life of faith? And he has a chronic medical condition flaring up worse than it has in a decade. And then he finds out his wife is pregnant and he decides to move to a house with more bedrooms. Redeemer family, I want to encourage you that you didn't just say, gee, if you were really full of the Holy Spirit, you'd be strong enough to handle all of that. Instead, you said, how could we help? And then a whole bunch of you brothers and sisters showed up and started packing boxes. We can't meet every single need in every single way. I know that, you know that, we know that. But we're still, and we're still learning to do some of these helping things more effectively. We haven't had enough widows live through their 70s and 80s and 90s in this congregation to feel like it's a well-oiled machine and we got this yet. We're still learning to do some of this kind of ministry better as time goes on. But as we grow in maturity as a church, I hope that we'll continue to grow in the ministry skills, not only of correction and not only of encouragement, but also in the ministry skills of making meals and lending a hand of compassion to those who are living in real weakness. You see, what we've seen so far is that just as each one of us, by grace, receives a personalized kind of love from the Lord, which has corrected us right where we needed correction, not where everybody else needed it, and has encouraged us right in the ways we needed to be encouraged, not just in the ways that some other people needed to be encouraged. And the Spirit has met us in our weaknesses, not just in other people's weaknesses. There is this personalized love of our Lord that we've each experienced by faith in Jesus Christ. But that personalized love of the Lord is meant to be shared with others. 
not just stored up for ourselves. And not only are we meant to grow in this kind of personal, in showing this personalized love that reflects the Lord's for us, the Lord's love for us, we're also meant to grow in this fourth ministry skill, not only, not only experiencing and passing on his personalized love, but experiencing and passing on his patient love. See, this is the fourth ministry skill. It's patience for all. And you notice how patience stands out in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, right? You notice how it stands out as different than the other. Some situations call for correction. Some situations call for encouragement. Some situations call for help. All situations call for patience. And all the parents said, Amen. <laughs> what will, listen, so as, as we grow as a church family that is learning to love one another by sharing needed words of correction, listen, at no point should needed words of correction be shared impatiently with one another in the family of our patient Lord Jesus Christ. And as we grow in the ministry skills of encouraging the faint-hearted, at no point should encouragement for faint-hearted brothers or sisters be shared impatiently. Would you just get on with it? It's true. Just believe it and move on, would you? At no point should, should our encouragement to the faint-hearted become impatient as we seek to reflect the love of our patient Lord Jesus Christ. As we seek to love and serve others and help them in concrete and practical ways in their weaknesses, just as we've received help in our weaknesses, at no point should that help be offered in impatient and heartless kinds of ways. Some situations call for correction, some for encouragement, some for help, all situations. Every situation you'll face this week. Every situation going on with brothers and sisters in your small group. All situations call for patience. Now what will help us grow in patience? Two most powerful things in helping me grow in patience have been the following. First of all, knowing God's own heart. This is how God has revealed himself. Sometimes if we sit down and we want to teach somebody, you want to know what God is like? I'll tell you what God is like. First of all, he's holy. Well, that's not necessarily wrong. He is holy for certain. But do you know how God introduces himself in the Bible? God introduces himself like this. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. We've talked about it before because it's the most quoted verse of the Bible by the Bible, in the Bible. You can put that together later if you're still wrestling with it, right? But the Bible quotes this verse more often than any others. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Here's how the Lord introduces himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. 
You want to go deeper into knowing who our awesome and majestic God is? You want to get into the depths of what our awesome and majestic God is like? Here are the depths of what He's like. Here's what you'll discover. The deeper and deeper you get into His heart, you know what you'll see? You'll see more and more clearly that He is a God merciful and gracious, not flying off the handle, but slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Listen, the deeper we dig into the unfathomable riches of who our God and Redeemer is, the more our hearts should be dazzled by His majestic patience the more eager we'll be to pass on patience to other people around us. The first and simplest way that I'm aware of to grow in patience is simply to pay attention to God's own heart. A second thing that has helped me grow, or that perhaps can help you grow, is recognizing and rejoicing in God's patience toward me or toward you. Toward us. Consider how the Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and full of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience. Has this become a part of your testimony? Have you rejoiced in this aspect of your own testimony recently, Christian? That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ is displaying His perfect patience toward me, toward you, toward us, as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. So let me ask you, how are you doing with this stuff? What keeps you from using the ministry skill of patient correction? What holds you back from using the ministry skills of patient encouragement? What keeps you from using the ministry skill of patient help? There are some themes that we can consider from this passage, paying attention to specific people. Learning to use specific tools in specific scenarios. But none is more important than this. Learning to see His love for us. And then relishing the opportunities to pass it on to others. The big idea, the big idea of this message is this. I'd put it as a prayer. May our ministry to one another increasingly reflect the personalized And patient love of Christ for us. And so as you go into the week and into the scenarios that God has called you into this week. This is my prayer for you. May your ministry to others in the body of Christ. May your ministry to the glory of Christ in this world. 
May your ministry to others increasingly reflect the personalized and patient love of Christ for you. I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward at this time. And we're going to take a couple minutes to celebrate his personal and patient love for us as we take the bread and the cup as he instructed If you're here today and you're not following Jesus as your Lord, we'll ask you to hang out where you are while other people are coming to take the bread and the cup. We'll sing one more song before we're done. The reason we ask you to hang out where you are is simply because taking the Lord's Supper is a sign of ongoing faith in Jesus. And so to take the Lord's Supper without faith in Jesus is to take it inauthentically. But if that's you and you're not following Jesus and you're here today hearing about the personal and patient love of Jesus, I would love to invite you even right now to come to Jesus and to join us even this afternoon in rejoicing in his personal and patient love for you. This is our invitation to you. Come to Jesus today. And for those who are living by faith in the Son of God who loved us, who loved each one of us personally, for those who live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us, I'd like to invite you now to come and take the bread and the cup in glad-hearted remembrance of His patient love for us. You may come.